Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. Hey there, I'm Jonathan McVeary, communication strategist at the Donald P. Bellastario College of Communications. I spoke with Chris Skirka, assistant professor of film production and media studies and an affiliate faculty member in the science communications program at Penn State. The discussion is part of a collection of interviews with Bellastario College faculty, where I talk to them about their research and how it applies to today's media landscape. Dr. Skirko's research centers on the effects of public communication efforts to promote engagement with health, science, and environmental issues. He is especially interested in the role of emotion and how audiences respond to media messages. In this interview, we talk about some of those emotional responses, the power of labels, and what drives Dr. Skirko's research. Well, I never really planned on being a professor that studied media studies or communication. When I got to college, I, I really wanted to work in business. I I really liked school, but I also wanted to travel and I wanted to negotiate and I wanted to um, use my language skills. I was a Spanish major and a, a Japanese minor in college. But then I took accounting and I hated accounting and it didn't make sense to my brain. And so I thought, oh goodness, I have to drop this business major because I could not make it through the accounting credits I need. And a friend recommended communication as, a, as an elective that I could fulfill um, because she had a great professor and I thought, okay, I'll check it out. And it just really fascinated me. It was one of my first exposures to social science um, in college or high school, rather, I really didn't get much exposure to the social sciences beyond economics. And I think the fact that you could apply scientific principles to study how people interact and how they respond to media messages really stuck with me. And that at least put me on a trajectory to get a comm major in undergrad. And by the end of undergrad, I had to do a capstone class um, for the major where we had to do our own research study from start to finish. And it was the most intellectually challenging thing I had done at that point in my life. But I also saw myself as potentially doing this um, as a career because it just was so fascinating. I remember when I collected data and then analyzed my my data and some of my hypotheses were supported. It was just this, it was truly self-actualization. It's like, wow, I am so accomplished. This is so, so cool. Um, and that put me on, on a path to go get my master's. Um, and I really wasn't planning on going for a PhD. I really was just thinking, oh, I'll go work um, for the Centers for Disease Control or the Ad Council. I was really thinking I would take it to a more applied direction, working on implementing and evaluating um, health communication campaigns specifically, because I always had this interest in health um, that went back to probably childhood. And yeah, then I ended up going for the PhD because I caught the research bug. And 
Uh, my research interests evolved to include not only health communication messaging efforts, but science and environmental messaging efforts from the media more broadly. Great. Now, that, that's actually going to be one of my questions was those early topics that you were looking at, like, were they mm-hmm. health related? And was that the natural evolution to science communication? Mm-hmm. I think initially when I got to grad school, I was somewhat interested in the interpersonal side of, of health communication. And the, the root of that was that I had a lot of people in my life that smoked. Uh, my mom was a smoker. My aunt was a smoker. My younger brother picked up smoking when he got to high school. I really felt powerless to convince them to quit. And so I think I was interested in sort of interpersonal social influence strategies that anyone could use to sort of encourage people in their life to um, kick smoking from their lives. And along the way, I learned that along with social influence strategies, um, a big component of the field of communication is media effects and and media coverage of health issues. And that sort of got me thinking about tackling this issue from more of a public communication lens via um, strategic and persuasive media messaging like health campaigns. Sure. And now have you been able to help them quit at all? With what, with what you've <laughs> um, learned yeah. so far? With what I've learned, I I think over the years, I've learned to recognize that it is truly an addiction. It is not a habit. And so I think one of the best things you can do is be supportive. I think one thing we know from health communication research is that people don't like being told what to do. And so whenever you are encouraging them to um, engage in a particular health behavior or refrain from a particular health behavior, you have to do it in a very supportive way. It's not going to happen overnight necessarily. Most people who try to quit smoking make many quit attempts before they are successful. And so it definitely is a slow and um, empathy uh, intensive process. Yeah, believe that. Kind of going off that, like one of the things that you study most is uh, emotions and their role in how like, audiences respond to media messages. Um, and I was wondering if you can give me some examples on what that means and is there like a quintessential example for how emotions affect how people, you know, interpret and get media messages? Yes. The quintessential example in the field of communication and media studies is the anti-tobacco campaign. I think everyone has come across at least one anti-tobacco campaign in their lives. When we talk about uh, communication campaigns in my classes, my students automatically go to tobacco campaigns. That is what they have most been exposed to in their lives. And, um, in terms of the history of media studies and communication, that's where most of the attention has been, sort of a threat or fear appeal approach where you highlight the, the, the risky nature of smoking cigarettes, how it's bad for your lungs and your heart and your well-being. And that, in theory, is, is uh, likely to evoke the emotion of fear. And we know that fear can... Uh, um, under some conditions, motivate people to um, take protective action. So that's the quintessential example. 
And in many ways, <laughs> I, I sort of fit that classic model, but I think a lot of my work tries to take that and run with it and build on it in that I'm trying to look not only at evoking fear with science or health or environmental messaging, but evoking other emotions to motivate action. So a lot of my work lately has looked at anger. Can we make people angry toward the fossil fuel industry for misleading the public about the risks that their actions pose for climate change to motivate people to engage in pro-environmental activism. Uh, I've also done a lot of work with humor. Can we leverage laughter to get people to care about climate change and do something about climate change? Uh, and lately I've been doing some work on um, awe, so a lot of my work looks at climate change, uh, which means getting people to care about nature and the environment. And awe is this emotion characterized by a sense of wonder at how vast the world is and how small we are in it. And one of the key triggers for awe is panoramic views of nature. And so why not try to evoke awe in a public service announcement by showing the, the beauty that our planet has to offer to get people to realize, oh, this is an issue bigger than me and feel connected to all of humanity in the process to motivate um, climate change related uh, behaviors. So that's a, a new line of work I'm, I'm working on. Great. And um, so you mentioned that you, you, know, you study those three different emo emotions. Um, can you give me an example of some stuff that you've learned either, you know, I guess awe sounds like awe is still pretty early, but in terms yeah. of like humor, like what, what kind of takeaways did you see in those studies? Yeah, I think one big takeaway is that emotion is definitely the fuel for why we engage in behavior. A lot of the media affects literature that extends decades earlier has taken a very cognitive approach. Like, how can we change beliefs? How can we get people to think the, the right way and a, engage in rational uh, decision-making? And there's obviously a, a really important role for cognitive, analytic processing of, of information about risks specifically, but um, emotion is a motivator. It is the fuel that drives the car. If cognition is the car, then emotion is the gas that drives the car. And so I would argue, and I think many of my colleagues here in the college would argue, who also study emotion in different ways, um, that emotion is really central to how we react to and process media messages, um, be it about tobacco or climate change or narratives. I've done some work on narratives and how we might be able to tell stories to get people to, to care about um, people's health and well-being. And so emotion is, I think, a really important ingredient. But a second thing I will say from this research is that <laughs> emotion is not a panacea. Uh, it is not a cure-all. And it can definitely go awry depending on where the emotion is directed. So anger is a great example. If I experience anger toward the fossil fuel industry in response to this political ad that tries to sort of shed light on the nasty things the, the, the fossil fuel industry has done, well, then I'm going to be motivated to do something to address the fossil fuel industry. But if I see that advertisement and I get angry 
not at the fossil fuel industry, which is the sort of intended target of the message. And I get angry instead at the, the, the person who made the advertisement, like the political candidate who's trying to promote their agenda. Well, then I might experience reactance and I might be disinclined to uh, comply with the recommended action, right? So anger can work for or against you depending on where it's targeted. And that is true for, I think, many emotions as well. And so we have to be very strategic when we're looking to evoke different emotions with media messaging that we understand where the emotion is coming from, um, understand the underlying properties of the emotions that we can best um, harness that emotion for social good. I don't mean to take like a left turn here, but so going okay. like going Let's back, go like what are the emotions or that these emotions you're trying to kind of conjure? What what are they like fighting against? Like what what's the information? Where are these people starting from that they need awe to change their mind? Mm. I think one of the the big issues that we face as health communicators, as science communicators, is that people have prior experience with these topics, right? Like people are not living in a vacuum. They are not blank slates. Um, They already have preconceived notions about tobacco being bad for you. Most people know that tobacco is really bad for you and that it basically kills one in two users. People have a lot of thoughts about climate change. It's very polarized in the U.S., but by and large, most Americans believe that it's happening and that it's um, caused by humans. And so they they're sort of like cognitively on board. And so I think where emotion comes in is that it sort of activates them. It sort of um, primes the seriousness of the issue and it gets them to feel a sense of connection. We, we experience emotion because things are relevant to our lives. And so yes, cognitively as a smoker, you know that smoking's not bad for you, but when you come across a graphic warning label on a cigarette package that shows a diseased lung, that really drives home the the seriousness of the situation. Even if you deep down recognize that tobacco is problematic from a health standpoint. And so emotion can sort of put things back on our map and hit us on a more visceral level um, to sort of work in conjunction with our cognitive understanding of the information. Um, and that, that's actually a great segue into the second half of our talk here, um, because earlier this month, right. you, you and your team, a team of researchers had a study in the Journal of Nicotine and Tobacco Research. And mm-hmm. first, I was curious if the journal uh, Nicotine and Tobacco Research, do they often put media studies research? Is that something that you've seen in there a lot? It's interesting because you look at the title and you look at some of the research published in there and you wouldn't think, oh, this is where a media studies communication trained researcher is going to publish. But they are a journal that's all about nicotine and tobacco, whether it's epidemiological research, whether it's clinical research, they do social psychological research, and they also publish quite a bit of work on communication around nicotine and tobacco products. And so we do see quite a bit of work being published there on warning labels on tobacco products, on the effectiveness of campaigns about the harms of nicotine and tobacco products. And so is it a media studies journal proper? No, but I think 
publishing in those journals is so important for someone like me as a communication scholar because I think communication and media studies have a lot to offer uh, the academic community and the non-academic community. And one of my goals is to not just publish in media studies journals, because we all know what each other does more or less, but I think not as many folks recognize media studies or communication as a legitimate discipline that brings new stuff to the table. And so if we can take our research that is theoretically informed and empirically driven and publish it in these journals, it really puts communication and media studies on the map. Right. And I know that like the whole idea of interdisciplinary stuff is very hip right now. Like this is it, right? I mean, you were crossing. Yeah. That's how you get grants. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh Um, Well, cool. So like that study examines the labels on packs of cigarettes, like you had mentioned earlier. Um, and the mm-hmm. first thing that came to my mind um, is what you had mentioned is like those images that I don't correct me if I'm wrong. It's just not legal in the United States where they put the pictures huh. of the lungs and the, you know, the, um, very sick people on the packs. It's something in Europe, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how does that fit into the labels and why it's OK there and not here and even mm-hmm. the effect of, effectiveness of it? Mm -hmm. That question has a wormhole answer. It is truly a can of worms. Legally, yes. Legally, we are supposed to have graphic, full-color warning labels, pictorial, on cigarette packages in the U.S. So in 2009, um, Congress passed a law called the Tobacco Control Act. And that law did a lot of things. And one of the things it did was it said, hey, we are going to put a bunch of warning labels with images in full color on the front and back of these cigarette packages to convey to smokers the harms linked to tobacco use. And so that was the the task of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. So their job was to take these these, um, label claims Um, And then basically do some research, come up with some labels, and then implement them on the cigarette packages. So they did their their research. um, They put forth their proposed, I think it was nine labels, in 2011. And the tobacco companies did not love the prospect of these labels being on their products. To make a long story short, they went to court, sued the government, and they won. So the tobacco companies argued, among other things, that these proposed labels were more extensive than necessary. That's the legalese. And what that means is they basically said, these warning labels are infringing too much on our free speech rights. And so to your question about why the U.S. doesn't have them, the U.S. protects free speech, a very robust version of free speech that extends even to corporations. And so one of the things they argued is that you're putting these pictorial, they want to put these pictorial labels on our products, but that's too much. You're not trying to inform smokers. You're just trying to scare smokers. And that is infringing on our legal right to sell our product. 
And so instead of challenging it in court, uh, well, there, there was um, some back and forth in the courts, but the, the FDA basically said, okay, we're going to regroup and we're going to do some research and figure out if we want to use these same labels that we had proposed or if we want to um, not fight tooth and nail and come up with some new ones. So that was about 10 years ago. They've, <laughs> there have been some uh, critiques about how long they've taken to, to get this done. But in the process, they funded some research to look at the effectiveness of different types of warning labels, including that this research that, that we're talking about here that I was a part of um, during my graduate studies. And so one of the things that we were interested in was looking at different attributes of warning labels. So the gov- so the the tobacco company said, "Hey, these proposed labels are too extensive." So that begs the question of would less extensive versions of the labels be as effective at getting the job done? So, for example, if we know that a black and white image is just as effective as a full color image, well, why not just go with a black and white image because the the FDA is going to have less of an uphill battle in court getting that on the package. Um, If text-only versions do just as well as pictorial versions, go for text-only versions. So we basically manipulate different features. And one of the, the studies that we did was about sponsorship. Um, Not many people realize that the US FDA is the the agency responsible for these labels. So why not see if putting FDA sponsorship on the label might influence people's um, beliefs about who puts the labels on and also influence their credibility judgments. We know from a long line of research in health communication and risk communication that credibility judgments and trust are really integral components for why um, persuasive media messages are effective. And so we wanted to manipulate how people responded to um, that kind of sponsorship difference. Okay, great. And kind of from a very broad perspective, um, in terms of just labels, you know, um, what can you tell us about just, you know, when I think of labels, I think about um, not even just cigarettes, like uh, GMO labels and labels yeah. that are on foods that, I guess, like, the terminology doesn't, doesn't really mean anything, but, like, you just see it on whatever it might be. Like, what is, uh, like, mm-hmm. all natural, I think, is the one you see a lot, which, I guess, mm-hmm. doesn't really have a Organic. Term. Organic. Yeah, right. Locally sourced. Right. Mm-hmm. Grass-fed, you know, that kind of stuff. Grass-fed. Um, yeah. Like what? Like what do the labels mean to consumers, or that kind of thing? Like, um, mm-hmm. is it like for for your line of research in this kind of realm? Uh, like, what makes it important that we understand how they work? If you think about it, a warning label on a cigarette package is like a little health campaign in many ways, right? We think about health campaigns, and we think television commercial. You think about these days. I, well, actually, I don't have this anymore, but when I had Spotify for free to listen to my music, I would get public service announcements all the time um, as basically radio ads on Spotify. I upgraded, best decision I ever made to upgrade to Spotify Premium. But anyway, so that's what people think about when they think about health communication campaigns. But 
it's really hard to reach people these days. Um, the media is incredibly fragmented. Not everyone is watching the same stuff. And so reaching people is much harder. It's easier to target specific groups, but it's hard to reach broad swaths of people. And if you're trying to reach a target audience like smokers, well, one of the best ways to reach them is at the point of sale and every time that they pick up the, the harmful product that you're trying to discourage them from using. And so it's like a little billboard ad on the product. So every time they go to use it, assuming they don't cover it up or take the cigarettes out of the pack, um, they are constantly reminded that this is a really nasty product. And so it's useful in many ways uh, along those lines. And it's also um, very useful for non-smokers or people who might be at risk, like young young. Um, adolescents who grow up in low SES families who are at high risk for tobacco use. Um, every time they go to the store and they say cigarette packages, if there's a big nasty warning label on it, that's from our research and other research going to help discourage them from picking up smoking. So based on that and the things that you've learned, um, what are like future steps? Like, where do you where do you take the research from here, from what you've uh, seen so far? Where do we take the research from here? So the good news is, from a policy standpoint, the FDA finally um, put forth a new set of labels. Uh, this was about a year ago, and they said, "Okay, we did our research. We um, came up with some new labels, and so." They're still in the process of getting them out. Uh, I'm sure the tobacco companies are going to um, do their darndest to make sure that those full-color pictorial labels don't end up on their products. But um, if all goes to plan, they will be there soon. And so, so these these new I think ones, one, these new ones are new back, ones, to, yeah. back to the colored, full-color labels. Yes, full-color. And I and the big update from the original labels is that. If you look at the research, including the work that I did with my collaborators on these labels, is that the original labels the FDA proposed were not good at strengthening people's specific risk beliefs about smoking. So, like, we would expose people to these different labels and then ask them, you know, does smoking cause lung cancer? Does it cause heart disease? Uh, because those were the the sort of beliefs targeted by these different warning labels that the FDA initially proposed. Turns out, people already have really strong beliefs <laughs> about those things. Like, they know that cigarettes cause lung cancer and heart disease. And that was one of the, I think, the the flaws of the original labels, or one of the Achilles heels, is that the, the content on them was already pretty obvious to people. And that was, I think, why the courts sided with the tobacco companies, among other reasons, because th these are things that smokers already know. The FDA said we have to remind people that um, these, are these are the health risks of smoking. Deep down they know, but it's not really um, hitting them as it should. And so these new labels are hitting on um, beliefs that are a little less known about smoking and tobacco use. Um, for example, 
Um, smoking interferes with uh, blood flow, and that can be linked to erectile dysfunction in men. And that's not a, a belief that people typically think about when they think about the risks of smoking. And so the, the, these new labels, they do, I think, a better job hitting on beliefs that are more novel, that people don't necessarily think about. And so one future direction, I think, is to um, do further work on these labels. Um, do these, these new labels strengthen risk beliefs? The FDA did some research and they showed that, yes, they do a good job at strengthening these risk beliefs. Um, but, you know, future work is, and additional work is always a, a good idea, especially among priority populations like um, low-income smokers, at-risk youth, um, smokers of color who have more trouble quitting smoking, I think that's one possible direction. Another big direction is to look beyond cigarettes specifically. Um, E-cigarettes are a big conversation topic in the public health literature right now, and we do have quite a bit of work coming out now on the effectiveness of warning labels on e-cigarette packages, like Juul um, is, the, is really the big one. Um, Although less so with youth. You seem to be pivoting to disposable e-cigarettes. But anyway, um, so looking at e-cigarettes and other products. So you mentioned other products where you might see labels. Um, there's increasing concern around um, alcohol use. Um, new evidence coming out suggests that there's no real safe level of consumption. Um, and so people have looked at whether warning labels on um, alcohol products can be effective. We're also looking at, when I say we, I mean the, the research community in this space, is looking at um, warning labels on sugary drinks. Soda, Gatorade, these products really have no redeeming qualities. <laughs> they are nutrient-poor and and calorie dense. They're just sugar water. And so what happens when you slap a, a warning label on a can of Coke, for example. I think that's where the research is going to be heading the next couple of years. And that's hopefully uh, something I'm going to um, work on. Great. That's cool. And is there any connection to, I was going to make a connection to uh, climate change in terms mm. of when people know, like for smoking, people know it's not good for me, but you know, whatever their situation is, if they're addicted, um, is there any kind of similar thing with climate change where people, you know, I know there's a lot of deniers out there, but are there people that mm -hmm. are just like, yeah, it's happening. There's not much I can do about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big question is, is people feel like they can't do anything about it. There's definitely a sense of cynicism around the topic. And that's one thing that my colleague Jess Myrick and I are working on right now is we're interested in how repeated exposure to threatening coverage of climate change influences our emotional reactions and our um, feelings of efficacy to take action. Because a lot of the work that I was just talking about and in this literature, you basically have people look at a media message or watch a, a, a public service announcement once, and then you ask them for their responses in a survey, and then you send them on their way. And that's, that's important for gauging initial reactions. But we know that people are repeatedly exposed to this kind of content, right? And so in the case of climate change, yes, people, they, deep down, most people believe that it's a problem and that it's going to be bad for society and the, and the planet. But um, what happens when you repeatedly remind people with 
threatening news stories about climate change to their feelings about the topic, their sense of efficacy. And so we're in the process of, we collected some data, we're collecting some more data about how showing people stories over and over again might make them potentially feel less able to take action. So I think there are, there are parallels in terms of how much they're exposed to this content. And maybe we need repeated exposure, at least up to a point. There's probably diminishing returns at some point. Like too much of a, of a thing is a, is a bad thing. But it's, a, it's sort of an underexplored question that we're hoping to answer. Cool. Well, looking forward to uh, talking to you guys about that when yeah. that comes yeah, out. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, me too. That is the gist of my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like people to know about? Something I didn't ask? Um, mm. Anything at all? Um, well, I mean, I, I've talked a lot in my answers about how media messages evoke emotion and how they can intentionally be crafted to evoke emotion. But a lot of the work in this space looks at sort of emotion as the cause and then media use as the outcome. So, you know, why, why do people watch, um, in my case, Veep? I was watching Veep last night before I went to bed. Why did I choose to watch Veep and not, um, I don't know, Scandal or, or the news or a documentary? Well, I was in the mood to watch something funny, right? And so our mood can also be a really strong ingredient in this process. And so one thing that uh, my colleagues and I are working on in terms of the climate change communication uh, space that I occupy is we've done work looking at how people respond to threatening coverage of climate change and humorous coverage of climate change. But when people have so many options for the media that they can consume, what happens when people are allowed to choose either scary content about climate change or funny content? Does that produce the same effects if we force them to watch a funny or a scary clip about climate change? Does it have different effects? Um, that's a really important question in the current media landscape. Um, and so that's one point I also want to make is that, yes, media messages evoke emotion, but emotion can also in many ways, drive the, the media that we consume. And so that's a, a line of work I'm trying to uh, develop. So, so you're saying like when you are on YouTube or whatever and there's a that says, do you want to watch a Nike commercial or a Reebok commercial? Like you're saying you want to watch something humorous or something serious. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, there's a long literature on how we manage our moods with media content and selective exposure to different kinds of news. But we haven't looked at those kinds of questions in the context of climate change communication or specifically emotional content about climate change. And so, yeah, I, I really am thinking about Hulu, if you um, use Hulu. Um, sometimes it'll be, which one of these ad experiences do you prefer? The, the Toyota commercial or the Chevy commercial or whatever it is. And we're working on a, a study pretty, we're actually hoping to launch this week, um, where we ask young people, they either get to choose what they pick, what they watch, or they're forced to watch one of those different options. And then we're going to compare people who self-select in versus being forced to watch in terms of their beliefs about climate change, their reactions to the, the 
um, the message, their intentions, etc. Um, and we have some preliminary data to show this is with young people. Um, we're primarily interested in millennials and young adults because they believe that climate change is happening. They know it's a problem, but they're not super engaged in um, taking action. And so they're a really important group, a latent group to sort of tap into. And when you give them the option uh, of uh, funny content, scary content, or informational content about climate change, they're not picking scary. <laughs> they, they, they're gravitating toward more informational content and the, the funny content for different reasons, um, it seems. But um, yeah, and that has implications, we're going to find out at least, uh, because you know if, if so much coverage about climate change is this doom and gloom approach, but if given the option, they're going to avoid that content, well, maybe we should then be thinking about other approaches that they are willing to watch because then at least they're on board and they're going to be interested versus tuning us out in the first place. That was Chris Skirka, assistant professor of film production and media studies and an affiliate faculty member in the science communications program at Penn State. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit belisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Belisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.